Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Well, what we need to do, John and Lisa, is remain calm. On radio and television right now, we welcome Neil Dutta, head of U.S. economic research at Renaissance Macro Research. Neil, you are the king of transitory. Why is 6.X percent inflation transitory? Well, I don't know that I'm the king of transitory, uh, Tom. I mean, uh, we have been telling clients that um, that inflation is going to be uh, getting worse before it gets better. And, um, you know, today's inflation data has been uh, sort of vindicates that. I mean, I think if you look at this, this is actually somewhat worse uh, under the surface than it is on the surface. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at my Bloomberg, obviously shelter, but, you know, look, we still got a beat despite no contribution from airfares. Air, airline fares were actually a drag. It's hard to see how that keeps up, considering um, you know the travel uh, situation, which is beginning to heat up. I mean, if you look at uh, search interests for flights, uh, there's increasing demand uh, for travel. So it's it's unlikely that that we see a repeat performance on that front uh, going forward. Um, you know, I still think there's a decent uh, amount uh, in the pipeline for used car and truck prices to keep going up. Um, but again, the big the big story is here is rental inflation and it's and it's and it's firming. So um, I do think that the Fed still has a story to tell. So it's not so much what the inflation is doing. Obviously, that's important. But really, it's what's the Fed going to do about it. Um, and I think Powell um, is not ready to do something about it. Yeah. Right. Neil, and, I and wanted I think, to have this to Q1, Neil, if you can. Sorry to jump in, but I think this is important. When we get to Q1. And as I listen to you, it seems to be getting broader and stickier. When we get to Q1, if we're still in this position and unemployment, as Jim Bullard has suggested, could drop to a three-handle, how do you think communication evolves around that? From your perspective, your understanding of the reaction function of the Fed? Well, I think that'll, that'll keep the door open for rate hikes uh, starting in the second half of, uh, of next year. I mean, remember, this, the Fed is a very slow-moving uh, entity, Right. And there are institutional constraints. I mean, think about what Powell said last week. I mean, you know, you had folks like Waller and uh, soon to depart Corals talking about how, well, if the next few inflation prints are firm, uh, we may have to uh, shift the timeline for rate hikes, um, you know, maybe even hinting at speeding up the tapering process. Uh, Powell, I think, effectively put the kibosh on, uh, on that talk last week. So. Yeah. They've kind of locked themselves in to a steady pace of tapering, I think, uh, over the first half of next year. So, you know, look, we're talking about, you know, potentially substantial acceleration in employment ac activity between now and the end of the year. Obviously, inflation is firming. So we're seeing an acceleration in nominal growth. And guess what? The Fed is still buying yeah. assets, right? <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, so it just tells you how slow moving the Fed is. Um and look, I mean, I think that labor supply is going to come up and I think the Fed will have a good story to tell uh, and they, they'll, you know, and they'll continue to stick to that. Right. But, um, 
You know, the risk, of course, is that there's more of an abrupt shift in policy sometime later next year. Neil, let's say the data continues to come in like this and the Fed feels like it needs to hike rates. How high can rates go, given where the economy is, given how much debt we've incurred? Well, so that's the issue, right, Lisa, is that if you look at the the pricing in the forward market, I mean, the, the curve is so flat. So basically, if I'm interpreting the market correctly, it's, you know, let's hike twice and then be done, which sort of raises the question, like, why hike at all? Like, uh, so I don't, um, you know, the, the, to me, the back end of the curve looks very mispriced um, because there looks to be, at least in my mind, a significant amount of momentum in the, in, the, in the economic situation. I mean, demand is running very, very strong and it still continues to run strong. And, you know, you mentioned about how real wages may slow demand. That's unlikely, in my view, because aggregate incomes are surging. Right. So it's not just about what people are making on each hour work. It's about how many people are working, how long they're working and also their hourly earnings. And if you add up the sum product of those three things, I mean, that's growing like 10 percent. So that's a rough proxy annualized. So that's a rough proxy for nominal GDP. So now we need to think about what's going to be the distribution of that growth. I mean, is it going to be, you know, six percent real real activity and maybe four percent inflation? Is it going to be seven percent real activity and three percent inflation? What I can tell you at a minimum is that the Fed's going to be having to revise up their inflation estimates for next year. And one of the things that we've been seeing is that they've, you know, when you look at the median expectations, they've always been sort of just expecting inflation to slow down to 2%, right? So it's just sort of this mark to market exercise. There hasn't been this kind of capitulation from the Fed um, on the inflation story. And uh, I wouldn't expect that in, in December. And I wouldn't expect it in March either, because if anything, the composition of the of the FOMC is going to change. Uh, I don't think Biden is going to put people in there that are going to adopt a more hawkish response function to the data as it's coming in. Neil, yeah. love catching up with you. The perfect yeah. guest to talk about this with. Neil Dutta yeah. there of Renaissance Macro Research. Right now we will pause, and this is a wonderful interlude into CPI and all that we cover here. Jean-Yves Filon is CEO of BMP Paribas USA. He's an acclaimed world-class sailor, but far more, he has carried forward the heritage of BMP Paribas from Roland Garros almost 50 years ago, where it's safe to say he and his bank brand and own the sport of tennis. John, the only equivalency I know is what Barclays did in Premier League uh, years ago. Jean-Yves, you have had a bang-up year in the branding of tennis. What what will BMP Paribas do in 2022? How do you carry for the open in Indian Wells and bring it into your banking business of next year? Well, um, Tom, uh, uh, John and Lisa, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, and uh, Tom, you definitely follow and know tennis extremely well. You mentioned Indian Wells, which uh, we managed to, you know, really uh, host in uh, 2021, which we could not do in 2020. And it was an amazing way to send a message that we're back, back in business, back with clients. And as you said, the bank is, uh, has tennis in its DNA and the plan is to have Indian Wells in 2022 in March. This is, uh, you know, spring season opener and hopefully this time full capacity uh, a lot of fans and you know the values of tennis fits pretty well the value of the bank going forward 
uh, we, you know, it's a, it's a global sport. The bank is a global bank. It's all about sportsmanship, you know, personal improvement, and really, uh, uh, it's a it's it's a sport that you can really you know develop and 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 uh, and follow around the world. And this is this is why we like the game. Jean-Yves, let's pick up on that line you just mentioned. The bank is back. The bank is back. Are the employees back? Are they back on the trading floor? Is it business as usual? Can you help me understand how things are evolving at the moment, how things are normalizing in your business, your bank? We uh, absolutely, John. We are really, you know, uh, uh, asking and more specifically, you know, uh, incentivizing our staff to come back on premises. You know, I, I, we have to acknowledge that the uh, digitalization of our economy during the pandemic, you know, has allowed us to stay in business, to stay connected. Uh, including today, by the way, I, I love I, I love being in the studio. I, I look forward to being back in person with you, hopefully, you know, in the months to come. But having said that, nothing replaces the in-person uh, relationship and connectivity. It's very complicated to convey companies' values digitally, and this is what we do on the East Coast. You know, in the building you know well here uh, in uh, Midtown Manhattan, we now have over 30% of our staff back on premises on a rotational uh, basis, obviously, uh, and we are targeting 40% by year end, and hopefully early in 2022, uh, 60%. Uh, we are trying to make the office attractive. We are yep. redesigning our floors to make the time effective. Um, you know, it has. We have to provide value for employees to enjoy uh, being back on premises, and management is very focused on it. They want to be paid more. You know that. You can say the bank is back. We all care about this business. I care about this industry. You care about this industry. It's great to see people on trading floors again. But Jean-Yves, something's got lost with this younger generation. They don't want to be a part of it in the same way. How are you grappling with that? Does the price get it done? Well, it's, uh, it's one of the major challenges and concerns. There is a tremendous competition for talent. Uh, and uh, it's not only, by the way, within the banking industry, uh, competition comes from outside of the banking industry. Uh, and it's in some very targeted areas. You rightly mentioned, you know, uh, in corporate banking, the juniors. Uh, uh, it's in leverage finance as well, where there is such a high demand. I can tell you it's in some, you know, new technology areas as well, such as cyber and AI. And it's in retail. We have a retail bank in the United States. Retail as well uh, is uh, experiencing some tensions in terms of... Uh, you know, a uh, strong competition for some positions. How do we deal with it? Uh, listen, first and foremost, as you said, you know, it's about remaining competitive in terms of compensation. That is absolutely critical. But it's not only about compensation, John. It's, uh, it's uh, working for a company that has a purpose. Uh, I, I believe at BNP Paribas, our focus on CSR, on sustainability is quite compelling. Uh, it's acknowledging the fact that uh, some of our staff, particularly the younger generation, is looking for flexibility and the new ways of, uh, you know, digitizing uh, the business is probably there. And uh, we have to make the workplace attractive and uh, uh, people coming back here, it has to be for a real value. Jean-Yves, especially as you expand again in the United States, I do wonder how you compete with the likes of J.P. Morgan and the oligarchy of U.S. banks at a time when everyone wants a piece of the U.S. dynamism. 
that's very true. And you know, for a bank like BNP Paribas, which is a leader uh, in the Eurozone, and as you know, Lisa, we have a fairly large platform in the United States. We have a diversified business model. We have a retail activity, a wholesale activity. We have 14,000 people in this country. Uh, meaning contributing to uh, the workforce here. But uh, to be successful as a US bank owned by a European leader, you have to be very targeted. And to get a piece of the dynamism in this country of this, by the way, amazing recovery that we believe will continue in 2022, you have to be targeted, you have to really uh, realize what kind of value it can provide to clients. And this is what we've done uh, with our uh, uh, wholesale activities and retail activities. We, we can be quite effective with US clients who not only have a business model in the United States, but who are becoming much more international and benefiting from the uh, US growth, but yeah. European expansion that we see happening as well uh, in 2021 and 2022. Johnny, if you'll forgive me, because I only have 60 seconds left on the clock, we get some inflation data in America in about five minutes. What's your take from the companies you serve, you finance? What are you earning, understanding? What are you learning at the moment about the price pressure in America? Well, first and foremost, I'm learning that, you know, they are really very optimistic about, you know, the uh, expansion. Not only the recovery we face here, which is carry, which will carry, uh, um, you know, out in uh, carry on in uh, in 2022, and I see them investing. I see them, uh, uh, you know, positioning themselves for more capex investment and obviously trying to hire. Uh, inflation is a concern for sure, but uh, we believe that uh, with. Um, um, you know, uh, the supply chain disruptions will, will probably, you know, yeah. normalize, hopefully in 2022. Uh, and uh, uh, that it should, uh, it, it, that's not the biggest concern, particularly with such um, a GDP growth uh, that we're experiencing in, in, in this country. jean thank you, sir. As always, it's good to catch up. A privilege, a pleasure. jean Philly on there, the BNP Paribas USA CEO. Right now, and this is a joy. He's a gentleman, and this is always a joy in that he's running an airline and actually is familiar with the cockpit. He's a former gentleman from Colorado Springs and outside Dallas, Texas. Scott Kirby joins us now, the chief executive officer of United Airlines. I, I don't want to ask a snarky question, but I think, Scott, it goes to the pressure you face with COVID and vaccine. Could Aaron Rodgers fly out of Green Bay this morning on United Airlines? <laughs> I have no idea where Aaron Rodgers flew. Uh, but at the moment, uh, there, there's, we have a requirement for our employees, uh, and we got 99.7% of employees back today. Yeah. I'm really glad we have that done. And if you fly international, you gotta have uh, you got to be vaccinated in most geographies. But what about domestic right now? Are you checking? I mean, United is led on this, folks. Let's be yeah. direct about it. And this is your experience running American and all the other responsibilities you've had. What do you do with passengers right now domestically in America? Uh, there is not a requirement uh, domestically for vaccines. There is a requirement, of course, to wear a mask on board airplanes. And the airflow on airplanes, you know, literally is the best if you're going to be anywhere indoors. Uh, and our view has been on this point that, and the administration has already said this, and, and I agree with them, which is the best way to get people vaccinated is yeah. not to create frictional trans transactions. Every time you go to a restaurant, every time you get on a airplane or a train or a bus or a subway, uh, but to do it through work. And then you do it once and you get a high percentage of the population vaccinated. 
Uh, and that's really the most efficient way. And of course, that's what we did at United as well. Scott, how much re- uh, resistance did you face from your employees to these mandates? Well, you know, we got 99.7%. And, uh, you know, some, many of those people uh, started off unvaccinated or did not want um, to, to have the mandate. Uh, ironically, a lot of them actually had been vaccinated, but they just didn't, they, they objected to the requirement. But, um, but the good news is we were open, honest, and transparent. We start, I started talking to our employees about it in January. And so when we did it, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, it didn't come out of left field. We were firm. We never waffled about it. We, it was always about safety. That's what it was. Um, you know, I literally have written a letter to the families of every employee that lost their lives to COVID. Yeah. And when you do that, you know, it feel, you feel it. Um, I felt it. And that, the second time I started writing a letter again in July after the Delta variant kicked yeah. up, you know, I walked around, talked to my wife and called our team and said, we're doing it. Um, because it's about saving lives. Scott, looking ahead to the end of the pandemic, because it does feel like we are getting to a place where we can talk about that, how much will prices of airfares be higher simply because there is such a debt overhang, there is such a lost year, a lost era, it feels like, of travel? Well, you know, ultimately, I think prices, you know, by the time we're getting to next summer, uh, I guess, I'm guessing we'll be back to 2019 levels. Uh, and, and then they'll go up based on kind of our cost input. You know, fuel is a perfect example. When fuel goes up, airline tickets go up. And when fuel goes down, they tend to come down. Um, and, you know, the good, but the good news is most airlines, and particularly United, you know, got much more productive using technology and more efficient. And so our core cost structure, we at United think that we can be 10% larger than we were before with the same yeah. level of employment. And so some of that is going to is going to help mitigate any increases. Uh, but my guess is we're going to be getting back to kind of 2019 levels by this coming summer. If you're just joining us, Bloomberg greets Scott Kirby, the chief executive officer of United Airlines, Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keene. Mr. Kirby, Lansing, Michigan is looking at Delta and American and not looking at United this morning. I believe you pull out of 11 smaller towns today. Is this some form of reversion to monopsony or monopoly within the airline business that we don't have competition into some of these smaller towns? Uh, not at all. This is simply the economic reality of, frankly, of you know, not enough pilots uh, in the country. And yeah. uh, with not enough pilots you know, flying small regional jets, uh, just gets to be impossible. And your choice is, if, if you're only going to have enough pilots, do you want to fly to London or do you want right. to fly to Lansing? And do, we're going to fly to London, and, and it's as simple as that. Did you do this in conversation with the other domestic carriers? Was this an organized plan to be sure two, two airlines, say, were left in each town? Absolutely not. <laughs> that would have been illegal, but we didn't do it. Now, Robert Crandall's listening down in Florida, yeah. and he wanted me to ask that question. <laughs> Scott, I do wonder, in your conversations with other executives, how much you hear about business travel coming back, how much you're adapting airplanes to an era without the kind of business class that you used to have. Well, you know, I'm in the, it used to be, a year and a half ago, it was a minority of one, and it's still a minority today, but there are a lot more people that agree with what I'm about to say, which is, I think business travel is going to come back 100%. Um, we see all kinds of anecdotes, and particularly once people start traveling, they're getting back to traveling 100%. I'm here at COP26 right now, and it is so much more impactful being here in person than it would be doing Zoom meetings. Uh, 
you know, the, everything that, you know, the magic happens at dinners or at a happy hour or meeting someone for a drink. That's where things really happen. You get to know people, you build relationships. And that is human nature hasn't changed. Um, Technology is great, but just like video conferencing didn't kill business travel back in the 80s when Bob Crandall was worried about it, uh, it it's yeah. not going to kill it now. Uh, one final question. Uh, Lisa's really focused in on this. SFO to CDG. She wants to take the 787-10 Dreamliner. How bad are you getting killed on fuel costs for Lisa to go first class SFO to CDG? Thank you, Tom. Yeah, well, you know, fuel prices are up. They're our biggest, uh, they're our biggest cost input. Um, but we're glad to be getting back to flying from San Fran to Paris uh, and all the other markets uh, and love welcoming the customers on board. Right. And I can tell you, having flown four international flights right. in the last week, everybody on board is excited. Employees, customers, yeah. um, it's, it's palpable you, when you get on board an international flight. Do you call Mohammed Alarian like at the end of every month and thank him for flying United? Dr. Larian of Cambridge, he only flies United. He, like, literally won't go unless United yeah. goes there. Well, I, I will now that you told me that. Uh, I, I, I think one of our other biggest flyers, Secretary Kerry, uh, last night, because uh, he, he, we, have, we have a lot of those uh, at United. Yeah. Scott Kirby, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it right now, the CEO. They're ringing a bell for Scott Kirby. <laughs> Just to celebrate the, uh, the, <clears throat> the end of the pandemic, perhaps. We are who we are, David Rubenstein. This is a star football player whose career ended early, and this is someone who was ever framed by the horrific mining accident of Farmington, West Virginia in 1968. Who is Joe Manchin, and what do the Washington elite not understand about him? Well, I think they don't understand that he is in a state that's heavily Republican. And though he's a Democrat and he was Democratic governor as well, this state went for President Trump overwhelmingly. And therefore, I, I just don't think you can expect him to be doing whatever the Democratic Party leadership wants. He is uh, a Democrat and he's not going to switch to being a Republican, but he's very independent and he is not dependent on the Democratic leadership for his power base. Do you sense, David, and this is after the election, to be unfair, that he is in close conversation with Democratic moderates who are shell-shocked. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, I think he's saying to them, and I think he believes, that uh, the, the election in Virginia showed that you can go too far to the left, and that's what he thinks probably happened in Virginia. So what he's trying to do is to say, we don't need to have some of these policies that are spending a lot of money. We should, he believes very strongly in not giving people more what he would call handouts or more gifts from the government, in his view. Uh, and really, we should pay for some of the things that we are paying, with, that we are trying to get through legislation. And right now, we're not really paying for it. And he doesn't favor increasing taxes either. He would favor not having these programs. But he is a very personable person. I've known him for a long time. Uh, he's very intelligent. He's very uh, engaging. He just happens to have a views that are a little more conservative than Democratic Party leadership and a little bit more conservative than maybe uh, some other people in Washington would like him to be. But he's reflecting his uh, constituency. Remember, it's a constituency that is very Republican. And uh, 
he could probably win as a state if he if he switched to, to a Republican, which he's not going to do. He could probably get elected as a Republican. He's very popular, but he's also trying to reflect the views of his state. David, does he enjoy his power? I've met very few people that don't enjoy their power in Washington, D.C., so I would think he probably does enjoy it. He doesn't run around saying, look how powerful I am. But when you are as powerful as he, as he is, and I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a person who's not in the leadership, not the majority leader or minority leader, have as much power as he has. He has much more power now to affect the outcome of major legislation than anybody I know other than a majority leader or a minority leader or the Speaker of the House. Enormous amount of power, and I think he probably does enjoy it. Why would he not? Does he plan to use it to launch into something else politically, say, <clears throat> president? Uh, to be realistic about it, I, I don't think that's, that, that can happen. I mean, he, he wouldn't say that it could happen. Remember, he's now, I think, in his uh, early to mid-70s. And while that's young for some presidents, you might say, um, he would not be that attractive in the Democratic Party uh, primaries, in my view, because he'd probably be too much of a moderate to do win in the primaries. And I therefore think uh, it's unrealistic. Um, he is not likely to uh, run again for governor, in my view. I think he's pretty happy in the Senate. So I think he's going to stay in the Senate uh, if he runs for re-election. He'll be up in two years. And uh, he hasn't announced yet whether he'll run again. I suspect he will, but he hasn't decided yet. Uh, David, you've studied and indeed lived the path from Mr. Jones to Mr. Welch to Mr. Immelt and on to what we have now with Mr. Culp at General Electric. Your thoughts on the end of GE as we knew it? Well, it's a sad situation for American corporate uh, life. You might think about it that way because this is one of the most powerful companies in, in the world for a long time. And when Jack Welch was running it, it seemed to be the most impressive company in America. And now the company's being broken up. Larry Culp is a very talented executive. He did a terrific job at Danaher. And after a couple years, if his conclusion is the best thing to do is to break it up to unlock value, I think he's probably made the right decision. So it's unfortunate, but, you know, time moves on and no company can stay uh, as big as, as GE was forever. And it really had to, to make some changes and it didn't make changes quickly enough. And that's why they now have to do what they're doing. David, do you think that in 10, 20 years we're going to be saying the same thing about Amazon? There are very few companies that stay at the top uh, of the world for as long as GE did. Uh, Amazon could be one of them, but Amazon is still a relatively young company. But there's no doubt that there's going to be more companies coming along that we haven't heard of that are going to be the dominant companies uh, in the world in a few years. For example, 20 years ago, who heard of Amazon, Tesla, um, even mm -hmm. Apple wasn't that big a deal then or Netflix. So the world changes. That's one of the great things about capitalism. You can start a company. In a few years, you can make it a very powerful company. Amazon's in pretty good shape, though, and I think it'll be around for quite some time, though. Uh, David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Again, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. Look for that tonight uh, with a timely conversation with a senator from West Virginia. John, on this guest, we've got to start with CPI Wednesday, but there's a whole lot going on that Rabobank is truly expert at. TK, there's a ton, and I think the overwhelming story still is to try and understand <clears throat> what the incoming data means for the Fed's next move. Let's start that with Jane Foley right now, head of FX strategy at Rabobank. Jane, can we begin there? What the incoming data, CPI this morning, payrolls last week, the ISM, actually mean for the Federal Reserve going into next year? 
Well, to be honest, I, I don't think we're going to answer the question of whether or not uh, transitory is, is gone just by looking at uh, today's data. I mean, yes, if it comes in a lot weaker, then maybe uh, some of the, 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 the less inflationary uh, 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 among us are, are going to just to say, yeah, you know what, this is transitory. But I think more of the answers have got to be in the wage inflation, because it's only when we see wage inflation or if we don't see wage inflation that we'll be able to tell whether or not there are those second round effects. You know, and one thing that I think is going to be really Really quite thematic for, for the currency market certainly going forward over the next over the next six months or, or maybe even beyond is the fact that not all labor markets are the same they are very different you have more flexibility for instance in the US probably going to have more wage inflation and yet that's not going to be a pattern that we see elsewhere and that is going to be really important in, in trying to judge interest rate differentials and, and FX going forward. Jane, as you understand better than most, most things are solved in economics with the calendar. Just time. Let it pass. For the chairman of the Federal Reserve, I wonder how much time is on his side and how you balance what we're seeing on wages, which picked up still below inflation in America, but wages picking up at the same time the participation rate in America is not. How do you balance those two things, Jane? Well, that's exactly the, the, the problem in the U.S. You have a very flexible labor market. The participation <coughs> rate has dropped. People have fallen out of the labor yeah. market. Uh, and therefore, you're going to have, or we've seen, wage pressures as, as firms scurry around trying to find labor. Now, you go to a country like Japan, uh, <coughs> it's not the same sort of labor market. Firms tend to hoard labor. You don't have firms scurrying around trying to find uh, uh, workers because they already have them. And, and that's probably a situation more akin to what we have in Europe too. So uh, Lagarde, for instance, uh, remaining quite dovish, expecting that inflation is going to be more transitory. Well, maybe the answer to that, maybe the difference is in the labor market. Similarly, you can, you can see differences mm -hmm. in the labor market in, in Australia too. They haven't had the same reactions in the US. So in the US, yeah, we're potentially uh, going to see an interest rate hike. We think at the end of, of next year, maybe around uh, December. Obviously, some people thinking it's going to uh, come uh, earlier, but that's not going to be necessarily the same dynamic that you see elsewhere. Uh, for those of you on radio, and you can see it clearly on TV, Jane Foley is at the Rabobank London desk. That is a desk of the Netherlands. And what's important here, John and Lisa, with the inflation argument is Rabobank is absolute ground zero for the food industry hedging in the world. They own it from 1898 forward. Jane, you have a view of food inflation like not one single person we talk to. What do you observe at Rabobank about food inflation, hedging and speculation dynamics right now? Well, to be honest, I would take that back into energy. An awful lot of uh, food companies, like all sorts of manufacturers, uh, have big factories. And energy, particularly in, in Europe and parts of Asia, has been a real problem this year. So an awful lot of people trying to hedge that energy, uh, try not to pass those costs on to the consumer. Uh, but they are probably coming. So we are seeing that sort of inflation coming through. Uh, and this is, this is why, of course, central banks or various central banks are going to be, uh, are going to be cautious. Because uh, even if wages uh, go up, if you've got food inflation or energy inflation going up by more of a, a pace, you're still going to have real wage depreciation. And that's not the sort of thing that central banks hike interest rates into. So uh, this whole dynamic is, is really quite complex and really quite fascinating. And I think that's going to be the situation uh, next year. So more volatility, I think, at the short end of the curve. Jane, why isn't the dollar stronger given the backdrop you just laid out? 
I think there's a lot of good news in the price. So, for instance, if we go back to June, I think June, for me, the June FOMC was really interesting because that's when we saw that big movement in the dot plots of various FOMC members relative to March. That's when we began to see this dollar rally. Now, the dollar really has been on the front foot. It's been rallying, you know, since June. It's, 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 it's gained ground. And I think at this point of time, there's a lot of news in the price. And when you've got a lot of good news in the price and in, in terms of the Fed, etc., uh, well, you know, how much more can the dollar go? You're also looking at a situation where we've seen risk appetite, certainly for, for U.S. stocks, really benefiting. So you've got the dollar gaining and risk appetite for, for stocks gaining too. And, and I think perhaps that's not a, a natural dynamic and perhaps that's something which has, has, has maybe forced some of the bullishness out of the U.S. dollar as well. You said it, Jane. What a fascinating moment this is. It's great to explore it with you. Jane Foley there of Rabobank. It's a different Disney, John, and you know, I guess they're waiting for Mandalorian and streaming it. John, did you watch Mandalorian? I did not. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's campy. It's like there and we're all waiting for it. Okay. Should we talk to an expert? We should probably do that. We should probably do that right now. Michael, Michael Nathanson joining us, senior analyst at Moffat Nathanson with Craig Moffat, uh, definitive here. Michael, I want to talk about Disney on this conference call in the fear they have over the streamers. I've got Apple and Culver City over 500,000 square feet, doubling employee count to 3,000-something, Netflix with 300,000 square feet. They've got a million square feet in L.A. How scared is Disney about the new streamers joining them in L.A.? I don't think Disney's scared about competition. I think Disney's going to be focused on how can they accelerate their growth because in the past couple of quarters, there's been a slowdown at Disney+. Plus. I don't, you know, I think there's enough room for Disney obviously to win. But they need to talk to us about what, what they're seeing, why there's a slowdown, or whether they're going to do about it. Okay, what are they going to do about it? I mean, the, Disney is here. They're coming out of a pandemic. They got X thousand people at Shanghai Disney, you know, COVID and China and all that. What does your crystal ball see here? Is it like a massive opportunity coming out of the pandemic to buy pandemic-affected Disney? You know, we're neutral on it, Tom, truly neutral, because I think the stock last year more than compensated for the streaming opportunity and the park recovery. And for the past 12 months or so, it's, it's just been trading water. Our thesis is they have to spend a lot more money on content. Maybe that's to your Apple and your Netflix point that you know, there is so much great content available that you, the only way you get subs at this point is by spending more money on content, building awareness, trying to have a breakthrough hit. Disney's done a great job getting to this level, but in order to grow further, they need a lot more content. Um, you know, they have to have that flywheel spinning faster than they've done so far. They've also got to consolidate what they own. And Michael, I know you're focused on this. How do they leverage Hulu? What are you expecting them to do in the coming months, quarters? Okay, so Hulu is a, is a JV between them and Comcast. In two years, they have the right to buy it back. We think they'd be smart to buy it back sooner and try to create a more unified Disney bundle. Uh, you know, Hulu's on its own app island, and Disney Plus has its own app island. You put them together, um, and you create one single application where you can get Hulu and Disney Plus, um, and basically try to push more people to the, the bundle that's Disney and Hulu Plus, uh, Disney Plus and Hulu. They have to buy from Comcast. Um, they have, they should, you know, I'm sure they're talking to them now about it. It's not going to be cheap to do it. But they need to basically, what we, find, what we found in the research is that Disney Plus has done, uh, it's not well penetrated amongst older viewers. 
It's done a great job among kids, families, and fans of their content. But for the older viewer that's not a you know a Disney a Disney fan that wants general entertainment content, they need to do more. And putting it together with Hulu more closely probably could drive penetration. So we're expecting something uh, in the next two years before actually the timetable's up to try to consolidate that position and get 100% of it. Is this for a bigger slice for bigger pie? Or, Michael, could that be, and I hate this term, the Netflix killer, but could that be something that hurts Netflix if the likes of Disney can diversify the content slate beyond that narrow demographic you described? Yeah, so our, our view is like Netflix is a base, a base consumer choice. But as time goes on, what you're seeing is more people are adding more services on top of Netflix. Our Netflix thesis, and you know, we've been wrong on the stock, is that content is not a monopoly, that it's impossible to have a monopoly position in content. And the competition that Tom talked about, you're talking about, to us, impacts Netflix's, uh, the time spent on Netflix's, Netflix, the pricing power, maybe the cost of, uh, of doing business. So ultimately, more competition, I would think, would have some negative impact on Netflix's ability to raise prices and, and to compete. Uh, but in the past 12 to 15 months, the pandemic has really slowed down the ability to compete because you can't, you, you had a, a good 12 to 15 month slowdown with no you know, content was produced. And Netflix had a massive advantage. So for us, the next you know, one to two years will be a catch up on spending for all these companies that couldn't compete during the pandemic. Michael, when you talk about the fact that Disney Plus hasn't really penetrated the older individuals, the older households, are they fully penetrated with the younger uh, households, with those that have children? Lisa, I would say no. You know, Netflix is about 60% penetrated across the board. Disney added best penetration rates about 45%. So there's room to go amongst, you know, the core demo. So there's definitely room to go. But then as we, we show, it drops off dramatically. So yeah, there's upside going to the core. Then they have to expand past the core. And that's what we want to hear about, you know, on the earnings call tonight. The earnings a little bit later. Michael, before you go, what was Meta about? We haven't spoken since then. <laughs> what was that about? No. What are you telling clients? What is that? Exactly. By the way, we have a buy on Facebook, right? I so know you do. Happy. A big buy too. Yeah, exactly. What's Meta about? Meta is about a world in which Facebook could um, try to have more control, believe it or not, over the world they have now, right? Where it's, 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 a, it's a universe where there'll be commerce, there'll be communication, um, there'll be games, and Facebook's trying to basically have a leading position in that world. We've done some work on this. We cover the gaming industry. We think you know gaming will lead. And we're not sure that Facebook would actually have a position they, they want to have in this business. The other thing, Jonathan, is it was a way to take a ton of investment dollars, classify it, and we can now separate that from the core Facebook earnings number. And we can say to you and everyone else, look how cheap Facebook is. Right. Meta. If you give Meta no value at all, which we do, the core business is actually a lot more profitable than you think. But yeah, we'll talk to you in three to five to 10 years about Meta. Um, and we don't value it at all, but it's helped us you know, clarify the valuation of core Facebook. I look forward to it. It's a world, Tom, where regulators like us, politicians, want to sit around a table with us and share a drink. Michael Nathanson, thank you, sir. Michael Nathanson of Muffet Nathanson, thank you very much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.